You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Good morning, everybody. That was so good. Hey, welcome everybody watching at home online. We're so glad that you're joining us. We hear from former members or people who moved or family or friends who visited at Christmas and live in other places watching online and just thought I'd share real quick. Uh, I actually just posted this on Facebook. Last service at our 915, somebody watching at home online expressed faith in Jesus Christ live online while watching our service halfway through the message. And so I was just like, man, what a cool medium today to be able to do this live and know there are people watching and and you're sharing the gospel. So welcome, we're glad you're watching with us as well as everybody in the room. I wanna start out today as we're kind of talking about this treasure principle. We gave out the book. Many of you are reading it, following along, being convicted and challenged, encouraged. And what I wanna do is start with a question and then bring everybody else up to speed before we build on everything we've talked about so far. Here's the question and I need you to answer it to the person sitting next to you. So if you're by yourself somewhere, I want you to snuggle up. If you're single, they're single. Uh, be a good time to exchange phone numbers. And um, just go ahead and share the answer. Here's the question. You ready? What is the worst financial decision that you have ever made? Ready? Go. I'll give you a couple minutes. If you're doing this at home, feel free to call a friend, text your mama. All right, go ahead and give the other person a chance to answer. Is your dog, your kids? (laughs) All right, now help me out. How many of you have had some sort of financial decision that was tragic in some way. It was, it was bad. It's catastrophic bad. See, what's funny is how much laughter I heard in the room. Now, if you're in the middle of this season, it is not funny. But if you are 10 years or 20 years down the road, can't you look on it now? Okay, maybe not. But sometimes you can look on it and go, I cannot believe the way that turned out. Well, mine, real quick, is really not that bad. It's not that painful, but it's my story, and ours has to do with a car. Anybody else have a car, a bad car decision? Okay. So our story is this, and I'm going to try to be quick, but there's gaps in the story, so I'll just go fast, if, and going fast will maybe leave you questions. But when my wife and I got married, we both brought cars into the marriage that were paid for that were like ours through high school and college. Mine was something like a 1990 Cutlass Sierra, something like that, bench seats, baby. That's all I got to say. And she married me. So um, the, uh, my wife's car was a 1987 Grand Marquis that actually came with oars mounted on the side of it. <laughs> I made that part up. And uh, we came debt-free into that, the marriage, except for her car started to age quickly over time, and it started to always smell like fumes. There was some breakdown in the exhaust system. We'd had multiple mechanics look at it, and all of them pretty much told us, for the cost of fixing this, you can buy a new car, except for we couldn't afford a new car. And some of the details are fuzzy to me because we're talking 15 to 20 years ago, but at some point, we traded out a car or added to our cars, I don't remember the details now, a Chevy Lumina. And I was really excited about the Chevy Lumina, but when we got within one car payment away of having it paid off, my wife was in her first car accident ever. There was a car accident in front of her, and then she couldn't stop in time. It hit them, and since she was the last in line, they blamed her for all of it. 
And it was a tragic situation because then when they wrote us the check for uh, whatever it was, 1500 bucks or whatever it was, $2,000, by the time we made our last car payment, we had very little money to go off of. We didn't want to drive the car that gave you a contact high, even though we were in Colorado, every time. And we were trying to kind of figure out what to do with that car. And so we waited a couple days, but we started shopping and looking, and I got really impatient. Isn't it true that almost every bad financial decision you ever made, you made because you were impatient? That was my story. So I finally called a family member who said their dad worked for Ford and that I would get the family friend's discount. I didn't have to negotiate. I didn't have to haggle. I needed only to show up and they would give me the best possible price on that car, which sounded good. So we went to the Ford dealer. My wife picked out the car she wanted and she decided that she liked, this was mid, late 2004, fall 2004, she liked the 2005 Ford Focus wagon model. I don't know why, but they're real popular in Colorado to have a wagon of some sort and outback or something, because you go up the mountains, you throw your skis and whatever in the back, and you can go up to the mountain. So we sat down, and I should have known something was up. When the employee looked at me and said, now look, because you're a family member of a family member of a family member who worked for Ford, we have to give you the best price. But here's the deal. It's a lot of work for us to go and pull these numbers. And already, like, flags are going off. I'm like, why is this a lot of work for you? Shouldn't a piece of paper tell you what the car cost or what the discount is like beforehand? Yeah, but if we're gonna go do all that work, before we sit down, we need to know that you're actually buying, or it's just not worth the work to us to go pull all these prices to show them to you. So my wife and I committed verbally that we were gonna buy the car, and then they brought out the price, and it was gonna be $17,500 for a Ford Focus wagon. More flags started going off, but... We were tired of looking and we were impatient and we decided to buy the car. By the time you added on like the little beepers for the electronic doors and the security package and then that special spray for underneath your car that they add in there, by the time we added in all those things, over $19,000, I walked away and I immediately fell sick to my stomach. But the car was mine. I found out later that a normal Ford Focus without those extra three feet of space in the back is half the price, that I was doubling the price of the car for that extra space, which made no sense to me, but I agreed to do it. 48 hours later, my dad called me and said, hey, Matt, I'm the executor of an estate of an older lady who wants to donate her car to somebody in need. Do you still need a car? And now because we have three kids and had to buy a minivan, I drive around a 2005 Ford Focus wagon. <laughs> we ended up paying that off, I think it was over five and a half years, I can't remember, I think it was, that's right, it was like 150 or 200 bucks a month or whatever it was. We paid and paid and paid for that thing. And I praise God, and I own it. Like, there's a reason I keep that bad boy going. One of my friends at Kingsway who works on my car because he loves me, he says, how is that thing going after I used this story last service? I'm like, it's still going. We're at 182,000 and something odd miles, and my 10 and a half year old will be driving this car if I can make it last long enough. <laughs> I have made lemonade to the best way I know how. But I will never buy a new car again. It was the worst purchase I ever bought. It wasn't wise. It wasn't a good price, but it's been a good car. But here's how God brought good from my decisions. We ended up being able to donate. We took the other lady's car. We donated both of those other cars. The one gentleman who uh, had special needs um, but was really good with cars, he took that car, that boat, he took the oars off and the anchor off the back, and he fixed the muffler, and he loved it, and he drove it for a lot, lot longer. We were able to leverage our blessings for others' good, but I tell you what, I sure wish I hadn't bought that car. I wish I'd spent less money on a car that was every bit as reliable. Now, 
Did that paralyze us? No. Did we go bankrupt? No. Were we, were we stuck and overwhelmed? No. But it didn't give us the flexibility that we wanted. It took away our ability to go out to, uh, to as many fun meals or other things that we were able to do before, and it left us not able to be as financially generous as we would have loved to have been. If only I could have been more patient. Now, that's a good setup for where we want to go to today, because the reality for most of us is we don't always make God-honoring decisions with our stuff, and therefore, sometimes we have to pay what my last pastor called the stupid tax. The stupid tax is when you make a decision, and it is what it is, and God's going to go with you, but now you're trying to figure out how to navigate inside that. What I want to do today is totally show you what God has to say about money, and almost always, something in this makes people feel either offended or freed, and depending on where you are in your walk with God may dictate how you feel. So let's take a look first at what Jesus says. You'll find this in Matthew, or sorry, not Matthew, Luke chapter 12, verse 33, and Jesus says this, sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Real quick, so I could summarize everything the Bible has to say about money really in these verses, and then we'll be done for the day. Just kidding. We'll keep going. But real quick, so basically, number one, this principle is the bottom line principle. Whatever you invest your money in is where your heart will be. So if you invest your money in clothes and in vacations and in houses and in cars, your money will always be tracking those things. But if you invest your money in the things of heaven, then your heart will always go there as well. That's the principle of this whole series. Now, this advice here, sell your possessions and give to the poor. Did you know that the first church actually did this? What was the most important thing... Maybe, maybe I ask it this way. What is still this day the most important thing to a Middle Eastern person? Somebody said it. Their land. Their land. Have you ever noticed how much the Israelites and the Arabs are fighting over the land? It's mine. No, it's mine. It all goes back to Abraham. When Abraham showed um, him, or God showed Abraham the promised land and said, I'm going to make uh, this land all yours. Well, the Israelites believe, as the Bible says, that God gave it to them, and the Arabs believe that God gave it to them through Ishmael, and they're all fighting about it today. Well, almost all of the first Christians were Jews converting to Christianity because they realized Jesus is Lord. And if you read Acts chapter 2, 3, 4, and 5, what we see over and over again is people who had extra land is selling the land, bringing the money to the church, and saying, here, use this to advance the kingdom of God. The very land that people today are fighting about and killing each other over, the first Christians went, we don't care it's just land. That's a little bit mind-boggling. Does the Bible teach that we should not have anything on earth, that we should sell everything? There is a story a few weeks ago, I told you, where uh, Jesus is approached by a rich young ruler, and the rich young ruler asks him, what must I do to get into heaven? And Jesus says, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. So the question is, is that literally what Jesus meant? And what I would say is, I don't believe so. I believe Jesus meant it for that man, because Jesus was trying to reveal to that man that his heart was not in the right place. But this is consistent throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, that if you have two blankets and you only need one to stay warm, and somebody else doesn't have a blanket, and they need one to stay warm, give them the other blanket. If you have two pairs of shoes, and you need one to wear, and they need one to wear, give them your extra pair of shoes. And you could play that out into houses, or cars, or land, or whatever it is, over and over and over again. 
But the reason that we don't is because we don't understand this principle here. We think that everything we have here is the point. The treasure principle says you can't take your stuff with you, but you can send it on ahead. Ahead where? To heaven. Are you saying that God has a bank account in heaven where he's like accumulating the stuff here? No. So what does it mean? Let's dig in a little further. We'll see if we can figure that out today. Later on in Luke chapter 12, Peter looks at Jesus and he asks him this question. Lord, are you telling this parable to us or to everyone? Now, the context here, let me get into that. So What's often happening, as you pick up your Bible, especially your Gospels, you'll see story after story after story after story after story. Sometimes those stories are sequentially, they happened in order. Sometimes the author is trying to make a point, so he's pulling these different stories and putting them together in an order for you to see kind of what's happening. In this context of Luke chapter 12, Jesus is clearly teaching boom, 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 kind of one after the other, after the other, after the other. And so the point where we get here, what happened just before this? Two parables back, Jesus just said everything he said about sending it on ahead and treasure in heaven. Then he goes on and he says this. A good and faithful servant, a good and faithful steward or manager of stuff, when he comes in from the field from doing his duty and the master greets him, the master will sit him at the table and then the master will serve the servant. Now, in ancient cultures, that was mind-boggling. Nobody did that. If you were a master who had the kind of wealth to have servants, it was a servant's job to fulfill his duties to the master. That could be preparing the table, cleaning up the table, taking care of the crops or the animals or whatever your job was. So for Jesus to flip the whole model on its head and say, when the master returns, when Jesus returns, he will take you, the servant who's been faithful in his duties, and he'll sit him at the table. And instead of making you serve him, that's what you've done your whole life. Instead, this master will come and serve you. So Peter's curious. Are you, are you talking to us or who are you talking to, Lord? Now, what's interesting is Jesus rarely sat people in a room and talked to them. He would go out on countrysides and hillsides and, and that kind of thing and teach, but the group that he was always discipling was a smaller group of people. So he'd have the disciples there and he would teach the masses. Then he would look at the disciples and say, okay, now here's what the parable means. Then he would teach the masses. Then he'd look at them and say, do you get what I'm saying? And then he would teach the masses. And then he would take them away on a boat and he would look at them and say, now help me understand. Do you understand what I'm talking about? Do you understand what I'm saying? This was the normal pattern. So it's not surprising for Peter to look at Jesus and go, Lord, help us out here. Are you talking to them or are you talking to us? Now, here's the beauty of it. Jesus never answers the question. Jesus could have said yes. He could have said no. He could have said yes and no. He literally says this. The Lord answered, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom the master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food allowance at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. So, no. You can imagine Peter going, oh, thank you. Hey, somebody write that one down. So, what does it mean? Let's just walk through it for a second. One day the master will return. And what did you do with what the master gave you? The word servant here, the word manager here is really the word steward here. The whole idea that you've been entrusted with something, what did you do with what he gave you? 
if you were faithful with all that he gave you, then when eternity comes, you'll be given even more responsibility. Spider-Man was on to something. With great power comes great responsibility. So whether you're a stay-at-home mom or a business owner or an hourly employee or a retired grandparent or a pastor, what are you doing with what God gave you? Are you showing yourself faithful and trustworthy right now? And that's a hard question. How can I know? Well, one of the things that we take away from this is our eternal perspective affects our earthly priorities. Our eternal perspective affects our earthly priorities. What I mean by that is if I have a view that life is going to be maybe 60 to 80 years, depending on my health and other things, and my job is to make as much and accumulate as much stuff as I possibly can, to go on as many vacations as I possibly can, to dress as nice and drive as nice a car as I possibly can, then I'm going to live every day and every moment to accumulate and to get and to experience and to have. If my view of eternity is that one day I'm going to be given more responsibility in heaven based off my, res- my faithfulness responsibility here, then I start living this life differently now, today, in light of eternity. My eternal perspective affects my earthly priorities. Jesus says it this way in John chapter 18, verse 36. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. What Jesus is about to go to the cross here, and what he's saying is, look, if we wanted to stop this whole thing, we could stop this whole thing. But my servants know my kingdom is not of earth. My kingdom is of heaven. Paul, later on, builds on this whole concept when he says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 17, join together in following my example. In other words, hey, church in Philippi, follow my lead here. Brothers and sisters, just as you, sorry, just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. In other words, don't look at the pattern of this world and do what you see everybody else doing. Instead, keep your eyes on those who are living differently. For as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Why does Paul need to say this with tears? Don't miss this. Because Paul is afraid that the churches that Jesus died to save and redeem will trade their salvation for earth. Be it money or cars or power, prestige, or the pride of life. And Paul, even as he writes this letter, by the way, the church at Philippi is one of the only letters in the New Testament where they don't get rebuked. This is an amazing group of people, but Paul is writing with tears because he is so afraid that the church will not choose Christ. And he goes on. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. 
And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Yeah, you can clap for God, amen, yeah. Our citizenship isn't here. We don't live here. We're stranded here for a little while, but our home is somewhere else. So we wait. We wait for Jesus to come back. We wait for him to make everything good. We wait for him to bring everything under control, but we wait faithfully while we wait. When was the last time you wept over somebody choosing anything over God? Man, I want that. I want that brokenness over the things that matter the most. That's why treasure principle number three is heaven, the new earth, not the present one, is my home. We are citizens of a better country, a heavenly one. That kind of brings us all up to speed. That was just the intro. No, I'm just kidding. That brings us up to what I want to build on now. Because what I want to build on is asking this question, how does a citizen of one country live successfully in another one? In the book, The Treasure Principle, Randy Alcorn gives an, an amazing analogy he says, imagine for a second, you live in the United States, shouldn't be hard for most of you watching online, there are a few exceptions, but imagine that you are given a job in France for a couple months. When you go over there, would you buy a brand new house? Would you fill it with brand new furniture? Would you buy a new car? Would you do that? Most likely, unless you're in this room or watching online and you are just abundantly blessed financially, most of you would go, no way, it'd be foolish to do that. Why? Well, because in a couple of months, I'm gonna have to leave it all behind and come home. Exactly. So if that makes sense to you, then the question to ask yourself is, how do I live here as if I'm only here temporarily? Temporarily could be in a decade or four decades or six decades or eight decades, but I'm only here for a small span of time on the blip of eternity. Think about it. If you're gonna live forever, then 80 years, even 120 years is practically nothing. So then what do I need to do here to live as light as possible so that when Jesus returns, it's not hard for me to let go. It's easy because it's like, wow, I can't wait to go there to heaven. C.S. Lewis said it this way. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Even many Christians have settled for a life of unsatisfying material acquisitions like making mud pies in a slum. And so many of us, our worst financial decision has everything to do with the fact that we chased after something that we couldn't afford at that time in that way or maybe never should have. So what do we do? How do we live here while being citizens of there? That's a hard question. But Randy Alcorn in the book, he says, five minutes after we die, we'll know exactly how we should have lived. But God has given us his word, the Bible, so that we don't have to wait to die to find out. And he's given us his spirit to empower us to live that way now. So what I want to do is I want to make clear there are two things, two things that you need to do to live as a citizen of heaven here today, okay? The first thing you have to do. It's very simple. 
You have to settle your debt with God. Here's what I mean by that. The book of Romans is one of the hardest books to understand because Paul gets into such deep legal language. Let me see if I could summarize the entire book for you in about five minutes. Ready? Set your timer. I'm just kidding. In chapter one, Paul reveals to us in the book of Romans that God's eternal qualities can be seen and known by anybody and everybody so that all of us are without excuse. He goes on to argue that the Romans, even though they could know simple, basic truths about God, have not lived according to God's ways, and therefore God handed them over to their desires and said, have at it. Chapter 2, Paul looks at the Jewish people and he says, even though you had the oracles of God and you judged the Romans for how they lived, you're no better. You had the truths of God, but you've not obeyed any of them. So when he gets to chapter 3, he basically says, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Not one of us pursues him. Not one of us chases after him. Not one of us is faithful to him. So therefore, none of us can brag about how great we are. By the time we get to chapters four and five, Paul is arguing, and this is why God gave us faith and gave us his son, Jesus. Because in the same way that the first Adam sinned and brought sin into all of our lives, the second Adam, his name is Jesus, he came and he lived the life, the first Adam, and every Adam, that's us, and Eve, that's us, ever since, he lived it perfectly. So that when he died on a cross and he rose from the dead, he lived the life we should have lived. Meaning that he could trade his life for our life. So when we get to Romans 6, Paul says in verse 23, the wages of sin is death. In other words, what we have earned in our rebellion against God is we've earned death. We've earned condemnation. But when Jesus came, chapter 8, praise be to God, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the, yeah, you stop. Praise God. Because this is all of our stories. And the only way to settle our debt with God, somebody had to pay the price. Which is why Paul says in Romans chapter 10, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. It is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Yes. So by God's grace, step one is you gotta settle your debt with God. You've gotta come to him, fall on your face, cry out to him, acknowledge you need a savior. I can't do this on my own. Pay my debt, free me, save me. This is the power of baptism at work. We go into those waters, it is complete surrender. It is God, I'm giving you the old me so that the new me could come alive in Jesus Christ. Because you realize you can't do it on your own. But if you notice, I jump from Romans 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 8, 10. Chapter 9 is critical to understanding the book of Romans. Because Romans chapter 9, verses 2 and 3, Paul says this. I'm coming to you. And who's the you? 
He's talking to the church in Rome. Paul is taking a gift that was given to him by the churches of Macedonia. They've been giving sacrificially because the the people, the Jews and the Christians in Jerusalem are suffering under a terrible famine. And he's taking the money over to them to bless them. And he's writing, he's delivering through a messenger to the church in Rome. And he's saying, I'm going to come to you next because I want to take the gospel past you over to what we call Spain today. I want to take the gospel over there. Nobody's taken the gospel there yet as far as we know. I want to go there. And so the problem is I'm going to come to you And I need you to fund it. I need you to financially make it happen. And he says in chapter nine, verses two and three, he says, here's the thing. I would literally give up my own life and become accursed if it were possible for my Jewish brothers and sisters. What does he mean by this accursed language? Cursed language is strong biblical language that means to be literally opposed to God and condemned in God's presence. Paul's literally saying, I would take my salvation, I would trade it for yours, the Jewish brothers and sisters mine, if that were possible. But it's not possible, he says. Since I cannot trade my salvation for their salvation, instead, I'll give them my life. And then he says to the church in Rome, and I'm asking you to make it happen financially. So that he says in Romans chapter 10, right at the end of this whole thing about calling on the name of the Lord will be saved, look at verse 14. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. In other words, what Paul is saying is, I desperately want to go and tell them about Jesus. But I can't go if you won't send me. I can't go if you don't help me get it done. It costs money to do ministry. I need you to send me. And the same is true of all of us today. Missionaries don't get sent. Orphanages don't get built. Pastors don't have jobs unless somebody sends them. It's the reality. People in your workplace don't ever meet Jesus if you don't show up and tell them. Somebody has to send you. People in our community don't know that there's a kingdom of God that loves them and wants to forgive them and draw them into a relationship unless we go as a group and tell them God loves you like we did in the Dollar Club video today. Somebody must go. That's why I wrote this little phrase down. The intersection between faith and mission is generosity. We know as Christians that we are right with God. Jesus paid our debt. We're going to get to heaven. We're going to live eternally with him. But while we're here as citizens in a foreign land and our home is in another place, God wants us to live in a very specific way. And that is partnering with him to bring heaven to earth. This is why Jesus says, when you pray, pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven We are literally bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth. And we do that in the ways we treat people. And we do that in the ways we love people. But we do that by coming alongside of this world and saying, there's another way to live. You don't need a bigger, better, nicer car. You don't need more. What you need is Jesus Christ. So I'm going to live differently. Sell my possessions and give to the poor that you might know there's a God in heaven. It's amazing to me 
The gospel seems to take off in countries who have so very little. And the reason is, when Christians live radically, it says something about God. When Christians live selfishly, it also says something about God. So the question, first question, I would just have you ask yourself, what are you doing to partner with God in bringing heaven to earth? That's a hard question. But let's ask this. How much, pastor, should I give? I wish it was black and white. As here's the number. It's not. I think Dave Ramsey, who is not Jesus, he's not one of the apostles, but he's smarter when it comes to money than I am. I think he gets it right. He says this. Let's start with the basics. Simply put, the tithe, the first 10% of your income, should be given to your local church. It's strictly measured in money. You can't replace it with giving your time or your talents. Offering is anything given beyond that, but not in place of the tithe. After you've tithed, you can give in other ways. Giving a cash offering to your church above and beyond the tithe, giving money to a charity you support, giving to a friend or neighbor in need, or giving of your time or talents. Not only does giving of your money or other resources generate good in the lives of others, it also generates contentment in your heart. Some of you are like, what? That's craziness. I know. Where does he get this? There's this thing called the tithe. It's 10%, and it's throughout the Bible. We see it before the law in the Old Testament. We see it throughout the law in the Old Testament. And then we see Jesus affirm it in the New Testament. He looks at the Pharisees and says, you should have tithed. Good job, well done. However, you should have been more focused on justice and mercy. Then we see Paul later in the New Testament writings of the epistles. He later writes and refers back to the Old Testament tithe text in Leviticus and talks about supporting elders and pastors in churches. It's throughout the Bible consistently. But here's the thing I want to make very clear. Do I believe that if you don't tithe, you're going to hell? No, that's crazy talk. Do I believe that a Christian has to tithe to be right with God? No, absolutely not. I can't say that emphatically. Then why do you talk about it? Because there's something about that number of 10% that I think God has created, and that's why we see it consistently, to dislodge materialism from our hearts. Because I know this. If I can't manage to live on 90% of what I make, there's a good chance I have a spending problem. Now, there are some of you that's not true for. I realize that, but the problem is almost all of us believe that I'm the exception to the rule. 10% with God goes further than, than 100% without. Trust me on this. But the thing is, very few people trust me on this. I tell story after story after story and people go, I just didn't think he meant me. Like this Kingsway family who just sent me this on Saturday, new breaking information. I'm gonna read directly from their words so you know I'm not making it up, but they ask that I don't use their name. Here you go. For the first 12 years of our marriage, my husband and I never made tithing a priority. We gave occasionally. It wasn't much. I'm talking maybe 10 to $25 every once in a while. I just figured others gave so it's okay if we don't, especially since it's hard to pay the bills anyway. In fact, things had gotten so bad at one point six years ago, we declared bankruptcy. And despite that, we'd fallen back into debt again. Still, I always had this feeling that I should tithe, but I just didn't. 
However, about nine months ago, I finally talked to that about that to my life group. It had just been nagging and nagging at me. They brought up a lot of good points, and what really was stuck was when they told me to just challenge God. Still, I was scared. I didn't know how he could make ends meet if we went in at 10%. So I made a deal with God, because this is what we do. I told him I'd start at $50, and then I'd just add $10 every paycheck. I never believed those stories. I don't know why everybody thinks I'm lying. I never believed those stories I'd heard from people about when you tithe. Somehow, God just provides. But it is true. Just weeks after we started tithing, I got a call from my old doctor's office in Florida. We hadn't lived there nearly five years. They told me they had done an audit and owed me several hundred dollars. I didn't believe it until the check came in the mail. So I stayed faithful, and we kept tithing. And even when it got hard to pay the bills, I tithed, and God provided. Whether it was my parents sending me an unexpected gift card to Kroger's or making extra money on baby clothes I sold on Facebook. But the surprise of my life just happened this summer. My company was sold. You would think I would be devastated. But this turned out to be one of the biggest blessings of my life. Just a year before, I'd signed some paperwork that graded me two shares in the company, and there was apparently a disclosure that if it was sold, I'd get my money. After taxes, I brought home half a year's salary, enough to pay off a good amount of debt, live comfortably, and start an emergency savings account. So I tied 10%. It's the most money I'd ever given away, and I did so happily. And then on top of that, the old owner surprised us with an extra $1,000 on our 401ks on the night the sale was finalized. And just this week, another surprise financial blessing. My husband is getting an unexpected big bonus also. Never did I ever expect to be sharing a story like this happening to me. But God is truly good, and he will reward you for being faithful. Just challenge him and see. I don't know if I can encourage you to challenge God or not. I will say that whenever you step out of faith, you put God in a dangerous position because either he has to come through or he doesn't. I've been wrong about things I thought about God before. I'll just say that up front. But God has never, ever, ever failed me when it comes to money. I'll tell a quick story. I'll read one text and we'll be done. But don't miss the story. I've told it before, but I was sitting in Bible college about 22 years ago. I know it's hard to imagine that I'm that old, but I was sitting in this class, and our professor was a former missionary who had just been hired by the college, and he was teaching. I don't know what a Bible college prof makes. I know he had his master's and was working on his doctorate, so the more degrees you have, the more money you make. I don't know where he was, but probably somewhere in the 40 to 60,000 a year range would be my guess, just a guess. And he was telling a story in class one day, and he was talking about Christmas and how uh, each Christmas they divvied up family members, they each took a name, and each person bought a gift for somebody else in the family. And they put a limit on it, like 10 bucks or something. And he's sitting there telling a story, and what went through my sinful heart was, I'm so glad that my parents don't do that for me. And then he said, the reason that we do this is because we sit around and tell stories from the last year of all the families who've been baptized at our church all the missionaries that we knew and the kids they were supporting in orphanages or times that they'd shared the gospel with people. And our Christmas became a celebration of what God was doing in us. And then he said, my goal, our goal as a family is to give 25% of our income away. And I started crying in class that day. At that point in my life, I wasn't giving anything to anybody. I really wasn't connected to a specific church. But I told God that day in class that, That's a dream of mine, 
That's where that came from when I've shared that before is somebody else said it and I thought, is that even possible? God, I wanna make that my life goal. And I tell that story today is because I want some of you to think way higher than wherever you are now. The average Christian gives two to three percent. The average Christian gives two to three percent. But studies show in most churches in America, 50% of Christians don't give a dime. That breaks my heart. Because we've been given so much by other people giving us the gospel that we don't become like our heavenly father and join him in his generosity. Here was Paul's encouragement. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion or because your pastor wore a tie. For God, you're with me, all right. For God loves a cheerful giver. God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all you need, you will abound in every good work. What would happen if we actually trusted that right there? God is able to bless you abundantly so that you will always be able to be a blessing to everybody else. Would it change your life if you believed that? As for me and my house, we're gonna serve the Lord. What we're gonna do right now is uh, enter into the Lord's presence. You're gonna notice all over the room that there are tables set up with communion on them. Don't move yet. The reason that we do this is twofold, really threefold. But we want you to have time and space to engage with God. Some of you right now are being offended by this conversation about money and some of you are being encouraged. I want you to spend this time in the presence of God. When you take that bread and take that juice, what you're doing is celebrating the fact that God's goodness has come to you in the form of Jesus Christ. The bread represents his body. The juice represents his blood. And what you're doing when you take that is celebrating that God was generous with you and giving you salvation. There's black boxes or whatever you want to call it there on the table. There's also boxes in the back of the room in the walls. I want to encourage you to take this time to give generously whatever the Lord has put on your heart. And maybe you're like the gentleman in the last service online who's saying, I need God. I need to confess and accept him as Lord. Maybe that's you today. We're ready for you. And don't leave here today knowing that you have a heart problem that Jesus wants to fix and not fixing it. Do not walk out of here if you are ready today to accept him. You'll find people wearing connect shirts. Come up to them and say, I need to get right with God and I need to do it today. You don't even have to know what to do next. We're ready to explain it to you. Just be in this place. We'll give you four or five minutes to just be with God and then we'll start to sing a song and worship him. Take this time. Talk to him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, dislodge from us, Father, whatever is coming between us. God, let us not settle for mud pies when you're offering us a vacation at the beach. God, we love you. Thank you for your faithfulness to us, even when we were faithless. Lead us now as your children. In Jesus' name.